Welcome to this week's episode of our Thirsty Podcast. I am Maverick. And I am Goose. <laughs> and as long as he doesn't sit behind me, he's fine, he said. That's right. Because in case I have to hit the eject button. Yep. All right. So this week, we're going to be looking at the king shall come to prepare to meet him. So we're looking at the Old Testament lesson, which is prophesying John the Baptist coming in the gospel lesson. And Nathan's going to be preaching on the gospel. Oh, you're preaching on the Old Testament I am lesson. preaching on the Old Testament lesson. All right. Uh, I'll read the Old Testament lesson. It is from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem and call out to her. Her warfare really is over. Her guilt is fully paid for. Yes, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling out. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. In the wasteland, make a level highway for our God. Every valley will be raised up and every mountain and hill will be made low. The rugged ground will become level and the rough places will become a plain. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh together will see it. Yes, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice was saying, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry out? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like a wildflower in the countryside. Grass withers, flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Yes, the people are grass, grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Get up on a high mountain, O Zion, you herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, you herald of good news. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities, here is your God. Look, how, look, God the Lord will come with strength and his arm is ruling for him. Look, his reward is with him. The result of his work is in front of him. Like a shepherd, he will care for his flock. With his arm, he will gather the lambs. He will lift them up on his lap. He will gently lead the nursing mothers. So there it begins with the, the words comfort. And then Isaiah wants the people to really be comforted. And so he says it twice. Comfort, comfort my people. Nathan, this morning I was reading a devotion, an Advent devotion from Martin Luther College. And I'd encourage all of our listeners to find those. You can... Uh, email MLC and request them. Uh, you can also go on our Water of Life Facebook page. Uh, one of our people puts them on uh, every day. And the one that I had read uh, recently uh, was on this verse, Comfort, Comfort My People. And I was reading it going, this is really well written. Usually I don't look at who writes them. And then I said, oh, it was Professor, pa pa Professor Poston. I still don't say it right. No. Potion. And I think, oh, well, he's an excellent writer. So, But the point here is that I'm just going to read a few sentences. He said, a single Hebrew letter turns the word people to my people. An astonishing thing. He claimed them for himself. He would redeem them. He would buy them back. Later on, he says, Simeon haunted the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem some six centuries later an old soul waiting for the consolation of Israel. One day, comfort filled his arms. So just that idea of Isaiah saying, comfort, 
comfort to my people. And that's the comfort that's coming from God. And then the way uh, our MLC professor connects it to Simeon, uh, 700 years later, that Simeon gets to hold comfort in the person of this baby Jesus, only a few days old in the temple. Well, and the comfort, comfort in chapter 40 is quite striking, too. Uh, if you look back, the previous chapter ends with Isaiah telling King Hezekiah that, well, you've been saved from the threat of the Assyrians, but now there is another threat on the horizon, and the city of Jerusalem, the temple, and the people of Judah will be taken off into exile. The city and the temple will be destroyed, and the people will be taken into exile in Babylon. And that's how 39 ends, and then 40 starts with this very striking break from that, which is the comfort, comfort. And then two chapters, 1 through 39 in Isaiah, generalizing a little bit. I mean, there are gospel promises in those chapters, but the overwhelming theme of those first 39 chapters is all law. A reminder to Israel how they have broken God's covenant. Uh, Warnings against the nations around them for their evil ways and how they worship false gods. And then 40 marks a change in tone that starts with this comfort, comfort, and then starts talking for the next several chapters on what that comfort is going to be looking about like, talking about the suffering servant uh, that will be ultimately revealed in Jesus, but then also talking about how the exile into Babylon isn't the end of the story for the nation of Israel. They will be brought back. Um, and that's what the message of comfort that God wants spoken by the prophet is, that exile isn't the end. There will be a return to the land. God will save his people. In verse 2, he says, Speak to the heart of Jerusalem and call out to her. So as I was studying this, noticing how often Isaiah uses the words like speak, call, voice, mouth, word, uh, over and over again. Like, uh, how are we supposed to get this message out to people? We speak. And there I think of, Last night before our midweek Advent worship, one of our members, Dave, had told me about how he had talked about baptism to one of his friends at the gym. And his friend had told Dave, because Dave is very open about his faith at the gym, and he said, I don't believe that baptism actually works anything. And Dave recounted a number of Bible verses from memory, and then he talked about how Uh, what Jesus says to Nicodemus, that uh, you need to be reborn through water and the Spirit. And uh, Dave told me last night that his friend said, oh, okay, you convinced me. (laughs) And, And it's just that. I think sometimes we get so freaked out about talking to other people about our faith. And Dave is a good example. Dave does not like talking in public He doesn't like reading in public, and yet he's really not afraid to share his faith in public and just simply telling other people. Yeah, and that's that's the the true beauty and amazing quality of the Word of God, that it's God's Word that works that change in people's hearts, and that we trust God's Word and the Holy Spirit working through it to bring about change. Um, Something I noticed Speaking of verse 2, there's an interesting point of interpretation on the last line that says, Yes, she has received double 
or from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. And the uh, commentators are kind of split on that, if that means that Israel has received double punishment for now all of her sins, and therefore her punishment is done because she's gotten more than enough punishment. Or if it's talking about, well, no, now she's receiving double the mercy. Her sins mean she should receive punishment, but now she's receiving double mercy from the Lord. Uh, and that does seem, that interpretation seems to fit in better with the context here, that her warfare is over, that her guilt is fully paid for, and now she has received a double reward. While she should have received punishment, she's now receiving a double blessing from God. And when I was thinking of that double blessing, you know, she has received us from the Lord's hand. I was thinking, well, you know, like the Lord, or maybe us as as parents, holding out M&Ms in one hand and then having the other hand full of M&Ms to double. And they're not just regular M&Ms. They're peanut M&Ms. So it's Pe- double. Peanut butter. Well, peanut butter. Yeah. Not, not that, the, but no, that's like Reese's then. Not, not the peanut. The peanut butter. No. Okay. It's okay if you're wrong. And uh, he... He says there in verse two, uh, you know, speak to the heart. Well, speak what? Her warfare really is over. Her guilt is fully paid, paid for. Yes, she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins, like you read. And what he's saying here is it's done. And what's interesting about this is Isaiah is speaking several decades uh, before any of this happens. He's looking at it with prophetic foresight, and he says, Though Babylon isn't even a world power yet, uh, though Judah as a nation is not taken captive yet, though Cyrus, who would free them as a nation, isn't even born yet. Yeah, and Isaiah mentions him by name specifically. He's not even born yet, and yet it's done. And that's that's kind of a cool thing. Yeah, moving on to to verse 3. I really like the, this section, um, and it's a good one for Advent. It ties right into the John the Baptist. Um, but this prophecy of Isaiah is one we kind of seen. It's one we talk about being dual fulfillment, that there's an immediate—well, not in the case of Isaiah. I mean, there was a nearer fulfillment. It'd be within a couple hundred years. And then there's the ultimate fulfillment with John the Baptist. And the closer fulfillment is that— the exile is going to end, that God is going to bring his people back. And if you visualize the geography of the Bible, you have Israel and Judah over to the west next to the Mediterranean Ocean, and then or Mediterranean Sea, and then you have Babylon, which is over to the east, and separating them is a vast desert. And most people did not travel through that desert because it was inhospitable, they would go up and around on a much, much longer journey. And what the picture here is that the people want God to come to them. They want this rescue, but God can't, God can't wait to rescue his people. So instead of going up and around, the people are going to prepare this highway in the desert so that the Lord can come and rescue them as quick as possible. Yeah, and, you know, Nathan, you gave the chapel devotion this Wednesday. You talked about the road grader and so forth. So if you wanted to touch on that with these verses, but I'll be honest with you because Nathan talked about smoothing the road for vehicles. And 
you know, the kids didn't want to be uh, bouncing and so forth. Although when I was their age, I remember sitting in the back of the bus and the <laughs> suspension was never good. And so you went flying. That's why you wanted to sit back there. But being a cyclist, I was thinking of some of the roads around here that I know where the really bad roads are on my a road bike, which is very thin tires, and I need to go around all the cracks in certain roads around here so I don't get my bike swallowed up and my, my tires uh, torn apart. Uh, some of those roads, I need to take my fat tire bike out. And, and I did that the other day uh, for the first time for the winter season. That's a workout. You know, that's a really heavy bike with four-inch tires, uh, you know, way harder than you know, the, the road bike, but I don't have to worry about all the, the ruts uh, on the trail or all the cracks in the road and so forth. But as a cyclist, I really appreciate it when it's smooth roads. Yeah. And that's the picture that Isaiah wants us to have here. That idea of this road that will be made in the desert will be smooth and flat and level so much so that the mountains will be lowered and the valleys will be raised up in order to make a nice, smooth, level road. Um, my son had a wrestling meet up in Fond du Lac last week, and I haven't been up to my alma mater, Winnebago Lutheran, for a while. And my wife had pointed out, because I was commenting to someone about the one road in Fond du Lac, which is a super steep hill, she said, well, that's not there anymore they redid that section of highway and dropped the hill. And I went and looked over at that and that side when we drove by. I'm like, sure enough, it doesn't look anything the same because they lowered the entire hill. And I kind of pictured that, except I picture that the hills are gone. The mountains are gone, that it's just this flat level road um, going through the desert. And then that's what we hear about is fulfilled in John too, that John's ministry in the desert, as a voice calling, make straight the way of the, the Lord. Um, we have to be careful that we're not allegorizing this section, but it has traditionally been interpreted in John's message of repentance that this making a level road for the Lord is not literally making a road for him. It's preparing our hearts to meet him. In the traditional, you talk about mountains of pride, valleys of guilt and sin, and how we prepare ourselves during the season of Advent, a season of repentance to make ready for the coming of our King. Yeah, and again, to understand that Isaiah is prophesying the 700 years before John the Baptist, and he says, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, and then John, again, 700 years later, is fulfilling that with his very own words. And then verse 5, because we have repented— and in repenting, we are leveling everything out. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh together will see it. And there, the glory of the Lord, that glory of that we see, you know, parting the Red Sea, or the, well, I guess at first, one of the first times it appears is going to be to Moses, the glory of the Lord that's in the burning bush, and then in the glory of the Lord of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire the glory of the Lord on Mount Sinai, the glory of the Lord that comes down in the tabernacle, uh, and then we see the glory of the Lord in Christ. As we hear 
the Christmas angel singing glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men on whom his favor rests. That glory of the Lord and all flesh together will see it because the glory of the Lord has come in human flesh. It is interesting that phrase, the kavod Adonai, the glory of the Lord. You think of how it's used in the Old Testament and so often the human emotion that is connected with seeing the glory of Lord is one of fear. Uh, you have Moses at the burning bush um, afraid of God's presence. Um, the people at Mount Sinai terrified, asking Moses, don't have the Lord speak to us again. We're terrified that we're all going to die. You see with when people have angels visit them, and the angels have a far lesser amount of glory, but it's still that glory that's there, that people are terrified And that, of course, is the natural reaction that we as sinners cannot help but fear the presence of our holy God because we know our sin has made us unworthy. And yet what is Isaiah talking about is this glory of the Lord will be revealed and it will be that saving glory like when God revealed his glory to save the Israelites through the water of the Red Sea. His glory will be revealed when he brings the people back from exile, that the nation of Judah will be basically brought back from the dead, and then far greater the glory of the Lord will be revealed in Christ when he frees all people from the slavery to sin. And then verse 6, a voice was saying, cry out. And I said, well, what shall I cry out? And we would say as Lutheran preachers, you cry out law and gospel, law and I teach our students SOS, you show our sin, the gospel, show our Savior. And then when I teach that to adults, I tell them, this is what you should be hearing in every devotion. You should be hearing in every uh, Bible story, uh, every Bible study, and in every sermon. If you're not hearing that, it's probably not a good preacher, definitely, uh, hopefully not a Lutheran preacher. And then I tell them, too, is my job as a preacher is to make you squirm in your pew, is to make you feel uncomfortable, to make the flames of hell, make it feel like the flames of hell are licking the soles of your feet. That's the law. Like you're in the hands of an angry God. Yes. And then the gospel, the good news, is now to give that sweetness so that now they feel like they have been transported to heaven, and they're walking on those golden streets. Or the law is uh, picking away at their scabs that they have allowed to cover over their wounds of sin. And you know, sin, like false doctrine, it just spreads like gangrene. And then the gospel comes in and as a salve. Well, in this section here, too, is very heavily law, this first part, because it, it makes us look. You can look at everything mankind has accomplished, the pyramids, the International Space Station, all the different things we've done, and what does God say they are like? They're like grass. They wither, they fade, they die. Uh, and so that's an application. Like, you know, as people, we're tempted to look at the accomplishments of society and say, wow, we are we are really good, and before God, that's nothing. And from a spiritual standpoint, we can be tempted. We all can be tempted to say, you know, I've done pretty good today. I haven't done any terrible sins today. I'm not really a bad person. And before the holiness of God, before the breath of the Lord, we cannot stand. We wither, we fade, we're like grass, and there's nothing we can do before God. As Isaiah said in another part, 
all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We can do nothing that is pleasing to God on our own. Yesterday I was teaching some members in my adult confirmation class. They're just taking it as a review. And we're going through, in my adult confirmation class, I had written it based on our Lutheran order of worship from the new hymnal. And we're on the song of praise and so forth. And and I talked about how everything in a worship service should be done in a fitting and orderly manner. God doesn't tell us like what kind of style our worship is to be, but it should have a fitting and orderly manner so that there's a common theme, so that your hymns, your prayers, your scripture readings, everything fit together. And so I just bring that up because as you you read, Nathan, all flesh is grass, all its beauty is like a wildflower, grass withers, flowers fade, uh, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So there I had written one of the petitions, the paragraphs in the prayer of the church, these lines. This is more on uh, our nation, our government. Lord of the nations, the nations of the world come and go before you. Even kings and rulers are like grass before your breath. Preserve us from placing our trust in princes and mortal men, for only your word alone endures forever. Give us servants in our governments who serve according to your will that is in your word, keeping order and protecting life that we may live peaceably in godly quietness and honesty. And the reason I wrote it like that is that oftentimes, as you said, we we focus on different institutions and so forth, and it can be different institutions of our government and thinking that if we have the right guy or gal in office, and it's a high enough office in our nation, That'll fix our problems. And, and it really doesn't matter. It matters here in their earthly kingdom. But when it comes to eternity, it really doesn't matter. That brings to mind, are you familiar with the poem? I think it's Ozymandias. I am not. So it's, it's a poem. I'm going to paraphrase it. I really, I really like the imagery in it. It's a, man, it's a man traveling through the desert, and he comes across this inscription that says like something to the effect of behold i am ozymandias king of kings lord of lords look upon my mighty works and weep O mortal man and the point of the poem is the guy is reading this on the base of this statue and you can tell it was once this epic statue but it's now broken off only the feet remain the shattered head is sitting on the ground you can see okay there is an eye there's a broken arm there are no works to behold. There's just the sands of the desert that this ancient king who said, behold my works, there's nothing left. It's all, yeah. it's all gone, and no one even knows who he is anymore. It's just a weathered stump of a statue. And it's such a, it's such a fitting picture of the works of man. Yeah, and yet it's only God's word that is going to yes. endure. And that's the neat thing about teaching Bible class. I mean, I like teaching the... Sunday morning Bible study with, with our members, uh, and yet you know I teach a lot of adult confirmation classes a lot now. In fact, I usually have since Nathan's gotten here, I've been teaching like three different classes a week, which is fantastic. And then because it's cool taking people that are brand new to the Bible often, and then sharing God's word with them, and then they're able to see something that's been written you know, 2,000 years ago by the apostles or the evangelists or longer, like 
uh, like Isaiah 2,700 years ago and then being able to see, oh, hey, this applies to me right now, which is really neat because the word of God endures forever. And then verse, uh, verse 9, Get up on a high mountain, O Zion, you herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, you herald of good news. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Uh, there, what you were saying before, Nathan, is if God is going to come in his law, and he's going to come with his glory of the Lord like he did on Mount Sinai where the people were terrified, uh, yeah, we will be afraid. But he says twice, this is going to be good news. Uh, I saw a couple of things on Facebook, uh, plus some texts going around. My youngest daughter, Belle, was texting my wife, Shelly, that there was a young lady who, whom we know that has gone missing. That's terrifying. My wife even said, you know, that's my greatest fear. And that would be mine, too. And uh, it would be afraid. I can't imagine what the parents and siblings were like. Uh, thinking about their sister and daughter being gone. Now, just before we started recording this, I heard that she had been found. I don't know anything more than that, but that's that's really good news. And just like we have been lost to God, and yet God finds us, that is good news. Uh, and again, I said this these verses earlier, but as we're in the Advent season preparing then for Christmas, uh, think of the angels singing glory to God in the highest. We said that with glory before. And on earth, earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. There is the good news. Like Jesus, the Son of God, in all of his glory in the flesh, is not coming to bring war and terrify people. He is coming to bring good news and salvation. Peace between a holy God and sinful people. And I like verse 10 there, you know, when you're talking about the strength and majesty of God, the, the look, the Lord God will come with strength and his arm is ruling for him. And usually in the Old Testament, when we have that, that picture, it's of God's strong right arm. That's the arm that saved his people. And Isaiah, especially, if I remember, when he uses that phrase, the picture he wants people to have is that act of God spreading open the waters of the Red Sea and saving his people it's that arm of salvation. And Isaiah is saying, look, God saved the nation of Israel with the waters of the Red Sea. Now he is going to do something far, far greater in the future when he sends the Messiah to come and save the world. Yeah, and just before that, he says, here is your God, Emmanuel, God with us. And here's my movie reference for this episode. There I thought of, Probably one of the best of the Marvel movies is Thor Ragnarok. So in that movie, uh, you've got Thor who's been beaten down by his sister, Hela, and he's got his eye gouged out. He and his friends are just getting beaten down. And then you hear Led Zeppelin's immigrant song, and then he comes down with all of his newfound power. And remember, he's a god. He comes down with all of his power, and then he, along with his half-brother Loki and the Hulk and Valkyrie, then they take over. But here is your God. But again, he's just a puny God, according to Hulk in a different movie. Jesus is the real God. He comes God in the flesh. I, I don't know how to follow that up. <laughs> All right. And then, 
That's my whole goal sometimes is just to be able to, to say things that you can't respond to. Uh, in the last few verses, like a shepherd, he will care for his flock with his arm. He will gather the lambs. He will lift them up on his lap. He will gently lead the nursing mothers. And there, for our members at Water of Life, that our Racine campus has a stained glass window of Jesus as the good shepherd. And in that window, you've got Jesus as the shepherd, and he's holding two lambs in his arms. And then there's... Uh, adult sheep around them. Now, I know you're new here, Nathan, but have you ever found yourself you know, facing the altar, counting the sheep while you're up there? No, I, I'm usually looking at Jesus's toenails, actually, <laughs> and wondering, like, I can't draw stick people. I'm like, wow, they did a really nice job drawing these toes. That's usually what okay. I'm thinking. I've been here a little bit longer yes. than you have. And so the reason I asked that question is because there's like 11 or 12 sheep. You have to really looked and see, all right, maybe that's a part of the sheep there. I think having 12 sheep was kind of biblical, but they could have really just put 11 up there. But the idea, though, is that when we are near Jesus, when we are lambs in his arms or the sheep at his feet, there we are safe. The, the roaring line of the devil and all of his wolves— of, of demons and so forth, they can't get at us when we're by Jesus. Uh, he gathers us in his arms. It's when we go away from Jesus, go off and try and find other waters and other pastures, uh, that's when we get in trouble. But as long as we're by Jesus, underneath the window it says that uh, no one shall pluck them out of my hands. You know, that's a different verse that's applied to the Good Shepherd, but I think that's a great verse that uh, our early, the, the church fathers at our congregation have put there that as long as we're in Jesus' arms, nothing can touch us. And I really like the striking imagery of these last two verses where you have God depicted as the mighty warrior who fights for us, who is a terror to our enemies, and the God who is our shepherd, who takes us up into his arms. And now for my my reference, Michael, I think if you, you ask me in the future how many sheep there are, I'm going to respond that there are there are four sheep. <laughs> nice. Yeah, uh, that's, from, that's from Star Trek, The Next Generation. Uh, we were just talking about this the other day of Jean-Luc Picard, the captain of the Enterprise. He has been kidnapped by the Cardassians and not the women, but uh, the, the race of people, the Cardassians, and uh, he is tortured and to see that there are five lights, and he screams at the end, there are four lights. So if I ask you, you're just going to yell, yes. there are four sheep. There are sheep. four sheep. <laughs> All right, since you're going to be preaching on this text, is there anything else you want to bring up? No, other other than I'm, I'm really going to have to... Uh limit myself on what I'm going to talk about because there, there is a lot of imagery and a lot of application uh, packed into these verses and it's going to be just focusing on probably I'm going to focus on just two things um, the voice calling out the message of comfort and the making level the way and then the the law application of all men are like grass like if we put our works up before the holiness of God and one of the neat things that we do here, too, and 
you know, I've been doing children's devotions for my entire ministry, so 27 years. You're brand new to children's devotions. So for us, what I've often done is maybe I'll preach on one text and then touch on another text in the children's devotion or like this one where there's so much and you really can't get all of it into the sermon because you still want to keep it really tight. That's one of my new things for preaching is just keep it tight. Yeah, I might miss some things that are in the text, but people can't hold everything in. It's That's one of the things I remember from coaching too. Uh, in my early years, you know, I would, I coach and I probably give them like 10 things to remember at halftime. And then as I got older and smarter going, they can't remember all that. I need to give them like one, two, maybe three things to work on. And it's the same way with preaching. And, and, and so maybe you, you can then take a portion of that text and then be able to highlight that part in a children's devotion. I, I would say this is one of the, the nice things about having a three-year cycle of readings is that if you highlight one portion of a text, you can come back to it in a couple of years and highlight a different portion. Um, I'm still trying to figure out in my head what I'm going to do with my children's devotion because my ready-made one, most of our children in our church are also go to our school, and so they would have heard my object lesson already at chapel this week. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we get into the gospel lesson. Do you want to do gospel or? Yeah, let's do the gospel. All right, we can do the gospel. All right, uh, the gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is how it is written in the prophet Isaiah. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way for you. A voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. John was clothed in camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He preached, One more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One thing I noticed right off, right away, I don't remember if you said this to me or I heard this somewhere, but I got a kick out of it. Was it really smart? Sure, then okay. it was you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, jokingly, we call Mark the evangelist of the immediately because yes. Mark likes to say everything immediately. And somewhere I came across... Like, well, we see that right away in chapter one. Mark doesn't have time to bother with Jesus's birth. No, we have to get right to Jesus's ministry. So he jumps in right to the ministry of John the Baptist. Yeah. And we did touch on that a little bit last week. Okay, maybe that's what it was. And that, and I'm glad you remember that. And then also, I was going to touch on something similar, is that Matthew begins with uh, Jesus' genealogy. And Luke starts with the angel's message to Mary. And now, yeah, like you said, Mark begins with John's work. Uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is one of the things that I remember and bring up now, too, is how Mark, you know, this is kind of like the way I like to preach, is bring something in the beginning and then use it again at the end, just kind of tying everything together. And 
think of that with Mark's gospel. He begins in the very first verse that Jesus is the Son of God. And then at the end of his gospel, in Mark 15, because Mark is only 16 chapters long, in Mark 15, verse 39, he has the, he's recording the centurion at the cross saying, surely this man was the Son of God. So you can think of how each of the gospels has its own theme as well. And that Mark has that theme of showing that Jesus is the Son of God from the very first verse. And then having someone who is probably an atheist, well, maybe not an atheist, but at least not a Christian, tell Lord willing, at that very moment, surely this man was the Son of God. I really like reading and just seeing how tight the Old and New Testaments are as a whole book, how everything fits together, um, and how you see how specific the prophecies of the Old Testament were down to the very detail and how they were fulfilled uh, in the New Testament era. And this, that, you know, the people who first read the book of Isaiah probably would not have thought that that would be fulfilled by a man preaching a message of repentance in the desert, and yet the Holy Spirit reveals to the gospel writer, to Mark, that, look, John is fulfilling this message. He is a voice in the wilderness calling out to prepare the way for the Lord, the coming that Jesus Jesus is right there, that John is preparing people for his ministry. And there we can think of John as the last of the Old Testament prophets. Even though he appears in the New Testament, he's really fashioned after prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and so forth. Maybe I mentioned, I don't remember if I mentioned this, just, I don't remember. Anyways, someone had recommended um, when we were going through the Old Testament uh, at seminary that an interesting topic for a thesis would be comparing the ministry of Elijah and Elisha to John and Jesus, uh, because there are so many very striking similarities. And I uh, I thought about it briefly and then realized how much Hebrew exegesis <laughs> would be involved in that, and I decided that was not the paper for me. Wow, yeah. No, that's, that's an interesting concept. Yeah, Elijah, a little more fiery, and literally fire coming down from heaven. And then going up in a fiery chariot, and then John the Baptist is definitely fierier in his preaching and demeanor out in the wilderness. And then Elisha seems a little calmer, and Jesus the same way. Yeah, and then you have the, you know, the names, you know, Elisha, which is similar in Hebrew to the Yeshua of Jesus, and just some of the miracles that Elisha is the one who is it two. He, he has some resurrection miracles mm-hmm. associated with him, including a very interesting story where there are some people working and their friend dies and they happen to throw him into Elisha's grave. And when he touches oh, yeah. the bone of Elisha, he comes back to life. Yeah. There's just very, because then you, you factor in those resurrection stories and then you, you make comparisons to Jesus. It's just a very interesting, there's very interesting similarities between the two. Yeah, isn't it Elisha that has that kind of a weird miracle of making an axe head float? I believe so. Yeah, and, and there, there I think of a weird miracle of Jesus of having Peter catch a fish that has a coin in it. Okay, just not quite, you know, obviously it's important, it's a miracle, but not quite in the same 
par as maybe changing water into wine or walking on water or calming a storm. It is one of my favorite things to throw odd things at people. Like my son the other day was going to grab something, and I said, be careful, there's death in the pot. <laughs> and he's like, what are you talking about? I said, well, maybe you should read your Bible more, buddy. <laughs> well, maybe... It- Maybe if you had him memorizing portions of the Bible and other poetry and other books and so forth. I heard that from Grant last night. What did he say? What did I have he him? Told, he told Shelley that you had him memorizing things when he was being homeschooled. Because oh. <laughs> I think he called you like a schoolmaster, a <laughs> principal, that he had, you had him memorizing things. And I, I was thinking, well, that's fine. But I don't remember what it was, but it wasn't even like Lord of the Rings that you were having him memorize. No, it was Doctor Who. That's what it was. It was yes, Doctor Who. it was Who. Doctor Who. Okay. Yep. Um, Mrs. Klusmeyer was not, not amused by my efforts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. And then verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So... Here's a question for you, Nathan. Is John's baptism different than Jesus' baptism? This is the second loaded theological question I've gotten off the cuff this week. Okay. So, um, I, after what we went through at SEM, I lean towards no. That again, it is a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Um, And I'm shooting a little bit in the dark here because I don't remember all the details, but one of the reasons people will say that John's baptism was different is in Acts, there are some there are some disciples that they find that were still baptized or were baptized in John's baptism, and then it sounds like they were rebaptized. But Adolf Haneke, who was a professor at the seminary um, end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, had written that it's very possible that the comma and the quotation marks are in the wrong place in our English Bibles. Mm. And then in the Greek, it could mean that, no, they weren't rebaptized. And I don't remember all the details off the top of my head. But, no, I lean towards the people that John was baptizing for the forgiveness yeah. of sins the same way we baptize for the forgiveness of sins. The only reason I ask that question is my bishop, when I was a vicar, he asked me that question. I didn't have as good of an answer as, as you did now, but— same thing. So I went and I studied it and came to the same conclusion you did. I didn't quote Adolf Haneke, but uh, yeah, it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And like I said earlier in this podcast, that God's just blessing us right now at this congregation with people just coming from all over the place. Uh, they're hearing the word. Some of these, some of the people that have come just the last few weeks are people that uh, had grown up in this church. And then they've been absent for a decade, two, three decades. And uh, ones that I took through catechism class in the school, ones that I had confirmed, one that, oh, she hasn't been here since I've been here, which is almost 20 years. And yet God has awoken something in them. That goes back to the Old Testament lesson of the voice calling in the wilderness. They heard the word and has woken them up, law and gospel. And then they're desiring baptism. Uh, On Sunday, uh, I was at our Caledonia campus, and as soon as I'm done preaching at the Racine campus, I go up to our Caledonia campus, 
uh, one of our members is teaching Bible study up there, and uh, I was talking to someone before, uh, one of our visitors, uh, who had just come for the first time with his girlfriend, who has just come back after a decade of being absent, and he said, hey, Pastor, I want to talk to you, and I'd like to take the classes to become a member. It's fantastic. And he said, and his girlfriend is going to take the classes and maybe her parents, who are all members. And then he said, and I'd like to be baptized. And my seven-year-old daughter baptized. So we're setting that up for Christmas Eve morning. And then someone else that I just referenced that hasn't been here for over 20 years, she brought her granddaughter with her on Sunday for the first time, and that granddaughter is 11 or 12, and the granddaughter wants to be baptized. And we've set that up for January 7th for the celebration of Jesus' baptism. And I just bring that up. Again, I'm not doing anything fantastic, and neither are you. It's just we're preaching the word. God is blessing the word. We pray that the same things are happening in our listeners' congregations as they and our and their pastors are preaching the word, that baptism of repentance and forgiveness. Uh, people want that, and keep on sharing that word so we have more and more baptized saints. That's like I always take such comfort in Luther's sacristy prayer, that it's the power of God's word, because if it was up to me, I would have ruined it all long ago, that it's it's God's word working. I'm just the instrument, and I just pray I don't I don't get in the way of the working of the word. Yeah, and then the last paragraph of how John looked, you know, wearing a, a suit of camels here. So I would always talk with Pastor Leitonen, who was— uh, sitting where you are when we were doing the podcast together. And I would always say that his ministry at Shoreland Lutheran High School as a youth minister is really just to be John the Baptist to the kids. Uh, he doesn't have to do cool and fun things, wear skinny jeans and an untucked plaid shirt. You know, he needs to be John the Baptist to them, preaching law and gospel. And I did look this up. Is uh, You can order a real camel's hair suit coat, so that would be something for Mrs. Lightning to get her, her husband for Christmas. Is it as comfortable as tweed? I think it would be. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. It probably doesn't smell as good. Probably not. <laughs> so anything else on, on that last part? Anything with John's ministry? No, other than it is interesting that it does seem that John was an incredibly popular preacher that drew crowds he had his own group of disciples and yet his focus was always on it's not about me it's about the one who is coming the one who is more powerful than i and how his he understood his role in ministry everything he did was pointing to christ and he never lost that focus and that's interesting you brought that up of how he was a popular preacher again taught that yesterday in our worship or in our Bible study on worship services and worship styles. And I asked the people, you know, what kind of worship styles have they been to? And they talked about, you know, like maybe contemporary. We in our Lutheran church were often more medium or low church as opposed to maybe a Catholic church or Eastern Orthodox where you've got the processional crosses and uh, all the candles and the incense, that might be more high church. but I And I told them that uh, the idea is a church usually will grow, and you'll go to people, and, and you'll fill up a church. 
the music is important, the worship style is important, but what's really important is the pastor, is the preacher. If you have a good pastor that, uh, not a good pastor, Lord willing, we're all good pastors, but we're not all gifted in the pulpit either. But if you have someone who is gifted in the pulpit, the people will come. They'll even travel out into the desert. And and for us, Lord willing, they'll travel like more than 15 minutes to go to church. And one other thing, too, um, that gives me comfort is, you know, being a good preacher doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing flashy sermon illustrations and you're telling jokes and you're being very entertaining. It, it's preaching law and gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that you can just get up there and, you know, not do the normal things that a public speaker would do to be monotone. That can put a hindrance yeah. in front of that. But really, your people want to hear law and gospel, and that's that's one of our goals as Lutheran pastors is to present law and gospel. Yeah, and that's why you know Nathan and I talk in our office too about preaching, and that you know he is able to go more off the cuff than I am. You know, I'm not gifted that way. I I very much, when I write my sermons, I write for the way I talk. And one of my members a while ago, uh, this is last year, she talked about we had some new kids in the school or in the church service, and they, they were not sitting still, and they were kind of noisy. And the one service, the one little girl was crying and while I was preaching, and uh, one of our members said, well, she matched uh, your cadence. And I said, I don't have a cadence. And then I thought about, oh, yeah, I do. I I definitely have a way of talking and preaching because, and I noticed that because of the way I write. And I write, and I'll put extra words in or take words out just to match the way that I preach. Not that that I'm a great preacher or anything, but I understand I want to be a, a good writer. And then hopefully when I talk, it's coming, coming up. You know, like I said, I'm very close to what I write as opposed to yours are long, your sermons are longer because you are able to have the gift to be able to add more things. And that's because I struggle more. I think my writing is more scholarly, which does not really fit. The preaching is, mm-hmm. a, different, is a different thing um, than the way I write. So sometimes my... I write my sermons with the ideas I want to hit, and then I try to communicate them, communicate them better, which is how you pointed out to me how a 1,600-word manuscript could turn into a 19-minute sermon. Yes. So. Yeah, whereas mine are like <laughs> 1,800 words, and I'm preaching at 14 <laughs> minutes. But And that's where I'm trying to talk slower, and I just get excited, and I don't. Uh, all right, anything else on this text now that we're talking about preaching? No. Because as much as we're going to talk about preaching, we're not going to be as good as John the Baptist either. Correct. Yeah. So we'll wrap it up here. This is Pastor Michael Zarling and Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer here at Water of Life Lutheran Church. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. You are thirsty, my friends, so drink deeply from the water of life.